And if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can turn in the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 7. Continuing to read through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7, we'll read verses 6 through the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Thus far the reading of God's word. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. How good your word is, O Lord. How searching. How much light. What a blessed gift it is, Father, to hear it read and proclaimed, opened, taught. And so be pleased, Father, to bless the reading and the preaching of your word now, that your people may be built up and strengthened, retrieved and corrected, nourished, sustained. Above all, O Lord, exalt Jesus Christ, our King, that we may behold him, for in seeing him we have life. And pray these things in his precious name, amen. Uh, we continue in 
the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Although we're taking a slightly different approach this evening, you'll notice that our sermon text is not the second commandment. It's from 1 Peter. I'll read our sermon text, which is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and then I'll read Westminster Shorter, question 51. But first, the reading of God's word. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And question 51 asks, what is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. We've been considering the second commandment as God's command, not just that his people worship him, but that his people worship him according to the means and the ways that he has given us. And we are not free to invent an approach unto God. The strict interpretation of this commandment is here set forth. What the second command is mostly concerned with is images. Worshiping images. If you know anything about Israel's sad history, you know that this was quite literally a sin that they fell into. When we speak about our idolatry, we talk about giving our allegiance to things, right? We talk about worshiping things. We don't mean that we bring a pile of money into church and we all bow down before it. What we mean is that we arrange our lives such that our devotion to money is plainly made known. But there's a sense in which the prohibition against images has its most obvious and strictest context in the worship life of Israel, where it was quite literally that they would set up an image and they would bow down to it. The Westminster Shorter 51 says, well, obviously you can't do that. <laughs> Obviously, that's not a part of our life as the Christian church. But one related topic that you'll often find treated in the Reformed exposition of the Ten Commandments uh, relates to the question of images of Jesus. Now, maybe you've never thought about this before. But if you look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, you'll find explicitly forbidden, according to the second commandment, not just images of the Father, but images of the Son. And not just in the context of worship, but in any context. That's a part of our Reformed heritage, it's a part of our Reformed tradition in terms of understanding this prohibition, not to be simply the invisible God, but even the one who in the fullness of time took on flesh. I think there's a, an unfair assumption about the Reformed position on why we're opposed to images of Christ 
There's an unfair assumption that it's just based on a simple syllogism, uh, a simple logical construction. Well, the Bible says you can't have images of God. Jesus is God. Therefore, you can't have images of Jesus. Now, if that convinces you, well and good. <laughs> I selected this text from 1 Peter because I think there's something more going on with our opposition to images of Christ. It's more sophisticated than that, or at least it's more important than that, I guess you can say. It's a part of Christ's design. So I want to make three observations from this text tonight. The first is that many have seen the king. The second is that you have not seen the king, and that's by his intention. And the third is that we will see the king, and that's by his design as well. So first, many have seen the king. Peter says, you have not seen him, but you love him. And he strongly implies in you have not seen him, that we have seen him. <laughs> Peter was an apostle. Peter had to have seen him to be an apostle. It's one of the qualifications of being an apostle. And this is a very important point in our faith, is it not? That the Christian faith is built upon the testimony of reliable witnesses. I'm sure you know this. I'm sure this is well-worn ground for you. But what we have in the New Testament are eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, by his design, gathered unto himself men and women to be witnesses. And then he sent out the men as apostles saying, you will be my witnesses. So this is a very specific arrangement wherein reliable witnesses are shown who the Lord is, what he has done, what he is saying, and then they're sent out. John opens his epistle with essentially this very point. First John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. They saw him, they heard him, they embraced him, and they worshiped him. Matthew 24. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Luke 24, and they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They worshipped the true image. They worshipped the true image, the exact image, the revealed image image, the risen and soon to be ascended image, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's significant for our purposes because we're reminded that 
Worship according to sight is a blessing. It's not a problem. (laughs) Worshiping according to sight is not a problem per se. And thus the question of whether or not we now worship according to sight, whether we have something afforded to our physical sight, is not a philosophical question. It's a redemptive historical question. It's a question about God's timeline and God's purposes. It's not a metaphysical speculation. It seems better to wrestle with the idea of images, particularly the idea or the question of images of our king under the broader headings of the age of sight and the age of faith. And I assure you, beloved, we are squarely in the age of faith. But the the disciples, the apostles, they got to taste the age of sight. That's very much what Christ's earthly ministry was. It was this powerful inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the king was right there. Consider what they saw. They didn't just see him. They vividly saw the full manifestation of his power when he touched and healed. When he multiplied fish and loaves to feed 5,000, 4,000. When he spoke a word and Lazarus came out of the tomb. They didn't just see him. They saw his power uniquely on display. They were very much tasting the reality of the age of sight. The day of beholding the king was also the day of beholding the king's power in a unique way. Now, this is really important because our faith is based on their sight. That's what John says. What we saw, what we touched, we proclaim, you believed. And our fellowship is with the Son and the Father. Jesus' very design is that these testimonies to who he was, to who he is, to what he did, would generate faith in him. They've seen the king, and we have believed their report. But even during Jesus' time on earth, he's preparing his people for a shift. He says these things like, the days are coming when you're going to long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you're not going to see him. He says things like, the days are coming... When I'm no longer going to be with you and you're going to want to go where I'm going, but you can't come. The days are coming when you're not going to see me. They were like, what? And then he really threw him a curveball because he says, it's better. I remember when I was engaged And Samantha and I were living a country apart. You couldn't have given me enough money in the world to believe that it was better not to see her. (laughs) Jesus says it's, it's better. Imagine the confusion that would have caused. But I like being with you. And he says, no, it's better that you don't see me. It's better that I go away. 
It's better that we enter this age where we're not face-to-face in this manner. He prepared them for a different mode of interaction with him. He told them it was going to be an age of not seeing him, and then he told them it was going to be better. That prepares us for what Peter places us in. You have not seen him. You do not now see him. That's what Peter says. You have not seen him. You do not now see him. Past, present. Why? Because he's willed it this way. Think about it. He appeared visibly to Paul. He had ascended into glory and then he appeared visibly to Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ has so designed that we do not see him in this age of faith for specific purposes. (laughs) Peter ties this age of faith, this age of not seeing with all manner of blessing and benefits that are difficult. (laughs) And the not seeing is one of them. He says this whole age of not seeing is a trial. A trial that is firing your faith and refining it. And this, by God's design, every single part of it, including the non-sight I think that's important. You're frequently going to find accusations raised against those who think there shouldn't be images of the sun. You'll hear people say things like, well, that's docetism. It's docetic. It's just the old heresy of docetism making a comeback. That's a very serious accusation. First of all, I hope you're not just going around accusing people of heresy. You shouldn't be. Docetism is a Christological heresy. It's a heresy about the nature of Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus Christ did not really have a true human nature. He just seemed human. He just appeared human. But he wasn't really human. Why? Because Godhead and manhood are incompatible. Manhood is utterly unworthy of Godhead. So you'll find the ancient creeds pronouncing on this rather definitively. True God, true man. (laughs) Two distinct natures, one person forever. All of which, if you attend our morning worship, we will joyfully confess as we take up the ancient creeds. All of which is basically taken word for word and put in the Westminster standards. So the accusation is really quite silly and rather irresponsible. The objection to images of Christ is not because somehow we don't believe he was true man. (laughs) That's plainly settled in statements like those of John, that which we touched, that which we handled. Or his later pronouncement, let the one who says that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh be accursed. It's also settled in the testimony that we pass on to our children. Think of some of the best stories, your favorite episodes in the Gospels. 
To my mind, there's no more exciting episode in Jesus' life than when he stills the storm. It was my favorite episode growing up as a kid. It's very gripping to a child. Growing up in the Midwest, I loved thunderstorms. I loved them. They're remarkable displays of power. I love them from inside of a brick house with a basement. <laughs> their noise, their force was incredible to behold. I was enamored as a little kid. So when my parents told me the story about Jesus of Nazareth asleep in a boat being accosted by something like one of these Midwest storms, and then he woke up and he told the storm, shh, I was amazed as a kid. Those are the sorts of testimonies that we give to our children about who this one is, who this one whom we serve is. There's no denial of his humanity. There's no denial of his divinity. It's right there. He was asleep. Just like you. Just like me. Just like some of you right now. He was asleep as true man. And then he woke up. And he told the storm to go to sleep. Very much not like true man. <laughs> In fact, we we're led with the apostles to declare, what manner of man is this? The objection to the images of Christ is that the king, who st stilled the sea, has willed not to be seen right now. He says, it's better that you don't see me. In fact, he pronounces this very blessing in John. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. The age of faith is contrasted with the age of sight. And we live squarely in the age of faith. So the heart of the matter seems to be contentment and trust with the current arrangement of the king's rule and reign. But I will say there is one sense in which we do see him now. And all of our interest in drawing pictures of Jesus have made this vision of the king less important, whether they intended it or not. It's really interesting to me that the only physical description we have of the Lord Jesus Christ is so general as to be basically useless in terms of reconstructing an image, unless it is a very basic image. What I mean is the only physical descriptors that we get of Jesus are of his wounds. We know nothing about his height. We know nothing about his weight, his eye color, his hair color. But two of the gospel narratives go out of their way to describe his wounds. John records Jesus saying, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. The physical description that we get of the Lord Jesus Christ or of his sacrifice as uniquely revealing who he is. John sets the same thing forth symbolically in Revelation 5 when he looks and he sees a lamb standing as though slain. It's very interesting to me that the one image that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ presses this very thing upon us. 
a broken loaf and a poured out cup. Bread and wine. Images. Make no mistake, we do not worship or venerate these signs and symbols, but we do receive by them testimony to our senses. Handling. Touching. Seeing. Indeed, tasting that the Lord is good. It's one of the reasons why the sacrament is so vastly superior to any visual image we might create. Not just because it's directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, but also because Jesus didn't come to be stared at and contemplated like a piece of art. He came to give life. And that abundantly. Or if you like, he came to be participated in. Or if you like, he came to be embraced. Or if you like, he came to be eaten and drank. However you want to present that intimacy, you get a glimpse of it, indeed a taste of it, in the supper. Because wine does something to you. Bread does something to you. It cheers and it nourishes. And as much as I love looking at Rembrandt or Caravaggio, with all due respect, I'd rather have a glass of wine and a loaf of fresh baked bread. And it also seems to me that by humbly receiving the Lord's gift in the sacrament, as a true communication of who he is, what he looks like, so to speak. We avoid, we avoid that inevitable sin of making Jesus in our image and likeness, which is perennially happening with any sort of sketch or drawing. The loveliness of our receiving the supper is we can be confident that we are not shaping him into our image and likeness. Indeed, we receive it expecting him to shape us into his image and likeness. The very image and likeness that is on display in the supper, namely of self-giving love. The Gospels aren't interested in physical descriptors of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are very interested and very capable and do an excellent job rendering a character portrait of the one who is meek, lowly, and mighty to save. It's the image of loveliness into which we are being conformed as we partake of the one to whom these blessed signs and symbols point us. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. The vision of love, perfectly on display. The vision of love, into which his life is conforming us week in and week out as we look unto him. But not only that, humbling ourselves in this age of non-seeing creates in our heart a true and earnest longing for the day of true seeing face to face. 
That's how he has us receive the supper, isn't it? I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Now it's true there's a sense there in which we understand him as seated at the right hand of God and officiating at this table week in and week out. It's not the minister who welcomes you to that table per se. It's the minister as representative of the Lord Jesus Christ who welcomes you to that table in the Father's household by our triune God's design. But the full sense of what Jesus is teaching us to yearn for here is that day of sitting down at table with him face to face with a cup of wine. And that's magnificent. Peter implies this when he says, now you do not see him. You do not see him now, meaning you will see him in a little while. <laughs> John makes that plain. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The blessing of sight is the blessing. <laughs> We're so impatient. <laughs> and it's this longing for the day of sight that actually makes pictures rather silly, doesn't it? You can imagine a wife longing to see her husband. And even if the person is well-meaning, shoving pictures in her face saying, see, see, your husband is real, is about the least helpful thing you could imagine. Because she's going to say, I know he's real, that's not my problem. I want to be with him. But it's even more repugnant than that. Because the picture is not her husband. It's a random person. And it's shoved in her face and she is told, see, your husband is real. Look at this random picture that we've called your husband. To which the wife hopefully says, that's not my husband, please take that picture away. To show a woman a random picture of a man is not offensive. To show it to her and demand that she believe it's her husband is actually absurd. The mildest way to put our objection to images of Christ is, we don't need them <laughs> because the king has designed to sustain our faith in this age of the gospel being proclaimed. A stronger way to put it would be by putting a vague, a vain imagination before a longing heart, we offend the true husband and do the longing wife no true service. Instead, let us avail ourselves of the life-giving presence that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us in the visible sacraments, which are made effectual by the word 
So more than that, let us avail ourselves of the rich tapestry of testimony to who our God is in the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been passed down to us in an account by reliable witnesses and this by Christ's design. And let all of that fuel our hearts longing for the day of seeing him face to face when we will finally be made like him, but we will see him as he is. And so we say together, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Mm. Your ways are not our ways, O Lord, as high as the heaven is above the earth. So your ways are higher than our ways. We have such a rich blessing in your word, O Lord. Teach us to receive it with faith and strengthen us by it. Teach us to long for the day of seeing our King and our God face to face in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask in his name. Amen.